Welcome, Welcome to, to the Better, Better Call Daddy Show. This is Big Daddy. Oh my God, that's hysterical. More stories you are not going to believe. And advice that you didn't know that you needed. Five stars. Five and a half stars. We're creating a legacy one call at a time. Here comes my daddy. Your problem is, is that you like me. My dad is my hero. He'll always be there to take your call, and you'll never be in too much trouble if your dad is around. Oh, boy. Hey, hey, hey. I think I'm a pretty cool dude. Better call daddy. The safe space for controversy. This is your host, Rena Friedman-Watts. No, this is your host, Celia Watts. More inspirational stories, more daddy drama, and more laughs. Hey, a lot of these things, I don't know where you're getting them from. It sounds like they're coming from when I look in the mirrors. Damn the public. Damn the public. <laughs> Punishment didn't really work in prison, and it doesn't really work in parenting either. Today's guest is going to talk about how he overcame addiction because he wanted to. Enrique Olivares Palayo, welcome. All right. Wow. This is a long yeah. time in the making. Yeah, it's been, uh, I don't know, a couple months. I feel like we got introduced, though. Like, it's been, it almost feels like years. Well, I feel like Optimus Prime seeing myself in this thing. <laughs> so be it. The sacrifices I'm willing to make for audio quality. Hey, hey. Look like a nerd. It matters. <laughs> yeah. Definitely. Yeah, I guess, I guess Heather introduced us, like, in January. Shout out Heather Patterson. Shout out. Yes. And actually it's crazy, but like you're coming on the show before her. Right on. I'll have to brag about that to her. Do you guys still hang out? I'm actually going to be at her pad for the next three days. Yeah. While she's not using it so that I can have a place to land in Phoenix. Yeah. We're still pretty close. Talk to me about how you and Heather met. There's a personal growth curriculum called size seminars. It's been around a long time but if anyone hasn't heard of it it's because they don't advertise and we were both doing some of the advanced classes together the way that we met initially was that like in the class in the basic class every new student has a small group leader and like a small group of people that they do the work with set a goal with do some exercises with so my dad took the class and heather was his small group leader And then I went and staffed a basic in Washington, D.C., expecting to see no one I knew. And there she was, staffing there, too. So that's when we became friends. Like, I love that your dad is a part of the story. Yeah, of course. He Well, he was making sure that I wasn't, like, in a cult. (laughs) He's like, I got to go see what my son's into. Sometimes these personal development things can be culty. Well, literally, right? Like, isn't Netflix raking in money right now with their Nexium one or whatever? Nexium, right? Was yes, the name I of it. watched that and yeah. wanted to Join interview people seminar. from it. <laughs> but you know what? We could talk about that actually a little because I even feel like religion and how they approach people can be culty. Sure. I mean, I don't think that the tried and true ways of like indoctrination brainwashing isolating people from their support systems like i don't think that those are like morally neutral right like the military makes the same requests right like we got to go over here for 90 days right except it's called boot camp and it's for your country but you come out with like literally a shaved head right like like the one you've got right now like yeah because i'm bald but like yeah because like you're in their cult now right but that cult has like wide 
widespread national appeal, but it also has a bunch of people who are like, I don't believe in that cause. I don't believe, I don't understand how anyone could ever like pick up a rifle and go overseas and like do that in the name of like capitalism and all this stuff. So I think that there's definitely a line in the sand when you're dealing with ways of like forming community and making people feel important and making people feel empowered and making them feel like their lives have value that like it's really important, you know, to not lead people astray and to not do things that are perverse or out of greed or out of a sick power trip, right? Because like that's how you form community, right? Like it's not like a cult thing to say, you can trust us. We want the best for you. We believe in you. Tell us about yourself. Open up to, like, that's how you make friends, right? Like, that's just life, essentially. So I think it's just a matter of, like, what cult you join. I don't think you don't get to pick a cult, unless you're going to be a hermit, right? I think just religion has, like, the established religions have a lot longer practicing than even our concept of democracy or anything like that. You know, like, they've been around a long, long time. So they definitely feel culty. They definitely have, like, rituals that don't make sense to an outsider. They definitely embody all of that stuff that you're talking about for sure okay i want to do a really interesting transition from that (laughs) to the fact that you grew up in like a stable home a good home with the mom who was a breadwinner yeah parents that loved you you were like a high achiever only child right Uh uh-huh and then you chose to be bad yeah I chose to rebel. I was attracted to like the seedier side of things and to the wrong side of the tracks. I think that like all of my choices would have stayed very garden variety, after school detention, slap on the wrist, except that in my ignorance and in my youthful arrogance, I tried heroin. And so I think that that really co-opted a lot of my decision-making abilities because I tried it at 14. I really jumped the shark with that one. Like my my youthful rebellion and my like sad feelings about moving from Massachusetts to Arizona. I was like, you know how I'm going to cope with my like totally normal, average, pre-adolescent hurt feelings? I'm going to do heroin about it. Like that, you know, it doesn't make sense. Okay, that it's totally not, freaks logical. me out because, you know, I have a 14-year-old and we just made a huge move his entire childhood was in Chicago and we just moved to Texas and yeah, he's getting ready to have to make all new friends and start a new school. And how does that happen? I mean, I know how it happened for me. Yeah. Tell me. I don't think however much we can generalize (laughs) off of that. Well, I know for me, like I was already sort of rejecting some of my scholastic ability and I was already rejecting a lot of the things that had been laid out before me, but I hadn't completely become cynical or jaded. What I saw when I came to Arizona, my perception was that I was surrounded by idiots. To this day, like a crushing delusional superiority complex is like a very real part of my perception, right? Like I rarely feel inferior. I rarely suffer from imposter syndrome. If anything, I'm like, I must be in the wrong room. Was supposed to be in the room with the smart kids, you know? Like where are the smart kids? And that disproportionate arrogance made me just like completely give up. Like, I didn't want to engage. I didn't want to do any of the things. Like, the, the humble, real things that you're supposed to do if you're talented, right? Like, do homework. Show up to class on time. The expectations that are held for every kid, I didn't want to do them. I thought that I was better than all that. And the only other peer group that also thought that it was better than all that were the kids who got high, right? So, like, on the outside, my peer group would have been 
whatever you call it, gifted and talented kids or like the advanced class kids or the honor society kids. That's what my achievement would demonstrate. But emotionally, my peer group was the kids who were checked out, not interested, frustrated, rebellious. That was my emotional peer group. And if I have any wisdom to impart to a parent, I'm not a parent. I have a dog. I know that's not even remotely the same ballpark, (laughs) except for maybe the sense of frustration that I sometimes feel when it won't do what I want. So what I would say is that like the outside peer group is not who your kid is going to gravitate towards. Like your kid is going to gravitate to their emotional peer group, to the people that feel and can relate to his feelings or their feelings. That's who they're going to want to be around. That's real. That's that's raw. Like at that age, like the prefrontal cortex hasn't even finished developing. Like you're not making logical, rational decisions like an adult. Not even all adults have been endowed with that capability. At that age, it's just about like what feels right and what feels good and who like gets you, who gets it. Or if they're feeling alienated or like they don't fit in, they're going to be in feeling and that's going to resonate with the other outcast kids or with the people who have found a solution. Because doing drugs is a solution before it's ever a problem. Is there anybody who noticed before it got out of control? I mean, there was teachers that noticed that I was falling asleep in school. There was people that noticed, there was peers that noticed that things would go missing around them. My parents noticed before it became a problem. But I mean, remember, this is is 15, 16 years ago. So the stuff did not have its own Hulu special with Michael Keaton right? Like this stuff was not on anyone's radar. Aren't you glad it happened before social media? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it didn't happen all the way before social media. There was MySpace and that was a very vivid social media experience for an eighth grader, for a freshman. You had to have one of those. And if you didn't have a cool song on your MySpace page, or if you didn't know it's like a little bit of basic HTML coding so that you could get a cool background, then like you sucked. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So how did your parents react to you starting well, to get in trouble? They tried to do the best they could. They, they tried to cope. They tried to do all the right things. They put me in an intensive IOP and we would go three times a week to get drug counseling and be with other people in an intensive outpatient like therapeutic setting. And I was exposed to Narcotics Anonymous meetings and they put me on Suboxone medically assisted treatment harm reduction, like they did everything they knew how to possibly do. And now that we can talk about this openly, and it's sometimes the topic of like whatever dinner conversation we're having, like it broke their hearts. They didn't know what to do. They were just desperate for anything that might help. Yeah. And I know that like my mom's emotional reaction was to rely on her huge family, right? My mom has eight brothers and sisters and there's a lot of people in that world. And my dad, I don't know. I don't know how my dad did it. I think my dad just like knuckled down and like did it like the old school macho way where it's just like, my kids got this problem and I'm just going to help them no matter what. And whatever emotional turmoil I'm feeling, we're just going to not deal with that until the situation resolves itself. So you're going to have to ask him if he's dealt with it emotionally or not. All right. Part two. (laughs) Yeah. But it sounds like they were loving though. Absolutely. They never stopped loving me. My dad a little bit more codependently than my mom. You're lucky there. Yeah, absolutely. No question about it. Like the playbook when your kid's strung out on drugs is to like tough love and put up boundaries and not let them be at your house or not help them anymore. And my parents didn't do any of that. 
my parents didn't do any of the, of the playbook. And who's to say what's right and wrong? Because so many of the parents of kids, and they did everything right according to what the drug counselor was saying, right? Like, you can't help them with that. You can't do this. You can't take them there. You can't, you know, let them use drugs in front of you. And like, those kids are dead. And their parents did everything right. And my parents just did the best they could and what they knew how to do. And, and here I am. And I think a lot of that just has to do with, with luck. With luck? Yeah. Yeah, I was going to say, like, what would you tell parents that have a kid that's in trouble now or that's suffering now? First of all, I'd tell them that, that that's a horrible thing that they're going through. And that the most important thing that they can do is actually for themselves because their kid is in the midst of a of a journey that has no certain outcomes except for death, arrest, and institutionalization or recovery. Those are the three options. And that while death and institutionalization are pretty much guaranteed if they don't find recovery, has many, many forms. It's not one size fits all. And so whatever form of recovery helps their kid reintegrate into society and lead a fulfilling life, then that's the one that's right for their kid. But more importantly than than that, over-identification with the role of a parent, they have to do something for themselves. They got to go to a support group of other parents who are in the same predicament. They have to take care of themselves because I can only imagine how devastating it is. But what I've seen time and time and time again is the parent completely losing sight of the fact that like their kid is is their own person and that they as a parent have a limit to what's possible or to what they can fix on behalf of their kid or what they can make right. There's not a big enough pile of money that you can throw at it to make it go away. There's not a reputable enough level of care to help their kid. There's It doesn't matter how famous or expensive the rehab is. It's just, it's one of those things that makes you shake your head and maybe and wonder about the existence of God, you know? Do you think your parents blamed themselves? I feel like parents do. Automatically, I think. I think that that's like the instinctual automatic reaction when your kid turns out to be doing something so self-destructive. You got to wonder like, where did this go wrong? What happened? But nowadays it's like, you might've done something. I mean, like, it depends on the circumstances, right? Like there might, there might be a, a moment when something could have been different, but that's hindsight, that's self-recriminatory and useless. It's useless to, to help anything. So the blame game doesn't work. It's just, it's just what can happen differently. And also like, I think everyone has to ultimately take responsibility for their own emotional and spiritual well-being. So even if you did mess your kid up to the nth degree, like if your kid has any chance of getting well, they're going to have to come to terms with that. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. Okay, so tell me, you moved from Massachusetts to Arizona, and you're a little bit upset about that. Mm-hmm. Then what? Yeah, and then my next door neighbor was one of the kids that I befriended, and he was nice to me, and he skateboarded, and he smoked weed. And so I smoked weed. And then it sort of took on a life of its own because his orbit of friends was smoking dope. One day, this guy pulled out his little square of tinfoil and smoked some heroin. And I asked what that was, and he said, heroin. And I said, well, let me try it. And it seemed so innocuous. I was already used to smoking weed and it just seemed like, and I had even smoked weed out of like a tinfoil pipe rolled it into like a little cylindrical tube. This didn't seem anything further than that. It was a trail of black and smoke. It didn't feel like my spider sense is tingling that this was like a terrible decision. It didn't seem too far outside the pale, you know? And so I smoked heroin for about two years. 
and went to all the IOPs that we just discussed and got in trouble and moved schools. And then one day, this guy I knew, rest in peace, was shooting up. And I asked him if he would shoot me up. And he said, are you sure you want to do that? It's a really shitty way to get high. And I said, yeah, I'm sure. So I stuck my arm out and he used a syringe on me. I honestly didn't feel the rush or the feeling that I was anticipating what I wanted. So I had him do it again. And on the second one, I felt really, 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 really euphoric and good and warm. And I could even taste the heroin in my tongue circulating through my bloodstream. And it tasted good. I was really off to the races after that. Back to back, huh? Mm-hmm. Whoa. Okay. Tell me what off to the races looked like. It meant doing breaking and entering into like every house in my neighborhood and stealing anything that wasn't nailed down. It meant stealing from my parents. It meant extorting uh, and like blackmailing my dad emotionally to like give me rides places, give me petty cash. It meant keeping secrets from everyone in my whole world. It meant like just engaging in really physical, physically harmful addict behavior. So I had lost the ability to like stop myself from compulsively looking to find a viable vein to get high in. So I would be covered in bruises and, and abscesses and constantly in pursuit of more drugs and the ways and means to get more drugs. And I would move to cities to try and do a geographic change that might make things better. And I would just be in such vicious withdrawals. And I, w- I didn't have the emotional capacity to handle opiate withdrawal as That's an intense. adolescent. I mean, it's intense for anybody, but I think adolescence is an already emotionally volatile and unstable time. And it's so anxiety provoking and emotionally excruciating to withdraw that I think that adolescents experience a much more acute emotional pain in withdrawal. It's just, it makes the Jones way, way worse, way worse. Because I mean, the physical part is just sick. You're sick, your nose is running and it sucks and you know what would make it better. So you want to go and get some, but the emotional part is like, I don't even have words to describe it. Panic attack type situation. What was the pain? Like what was the emotional pain? I think the emotional pain, it's not like it was like masking some other deeper emotional pain. I think that the emotional pain is just your brainstem getting hijacked by opiate addiction. So the emotional pain is, is your brain freaking out like a lobster in a pot of boiling water, just like not understanding why it thinks it's going to die. It's not going to die, but it's certainly sending like every survival mechanism that knows how to send every neurotransmitter that signals like imminent danger. Yeah. And like, okay, so your parents took you for help. Like, what was that experience? And was there ever like any moment where you were like, oh, I hated it. I didn't want any help. It was just a huge impediment to getting high. Yeah. I never got with the program. It's like, could that even really work for people? Like, I'm dubious. My experience (laughs) is that like, no one stops using drugs who doesn't want to stop using drugs. Oh my God. I just, I cannot imagine as a parent, like, have you apologized to them? Like, have you been able to make your peace? Yeah. I want to know what that looked like. Okay. But we still got to go deeper into like the shenanigans. So you started like really. Yeah. Well, I was now out of my parents' house. I was out of their roof and I was now attempting to manufacture a facade of a college kid and maintain my habit. And needless to say, that's a pretty mutually exclusive situation. So I didn't go to class. I did terrible. 
I tried to steal this girl's laptop at the ASU dorms, got busted with it. That was humiliating. Had to move to a different, crappier dorm. I was in the honors college at Barrett, and uh, that didn't pan out. So withdrew from ASU. It's amazing that you were able, though, to get into an honors program. Like, you were already, like, pretty deep. Oh, yeah. That's just the nature of my personal genetic makeup and the way my brain is wired. It's not not anything to brag about. It's like being tall or being bald. I'm just wicked smart. I could take the SAT high on heroin. And at the time, it was out of 1600. Did you do that? No, I didn't ace my SAT, but I got like a 15 something. And you were on drugs? Yeah. That's impressive. I couldn't do that. Not on drugs. Yeah. I think I actually did take the SAT hungover though. And I was like, oh, that's good enough to get in. It's good enough. It's good enough to clear the bar. Wow. So, So yeah, I transferred to the honors college at NAU. Well, because like it didn't pan out at ASU because the first couple months, like I would just like leave my dorm room and like man on the street, like ask people if they knew where to get dope. Like I'd go to a bus stop. I'd look at people. I'd look at like someone who might know. And I'd be like, do you know where to get dope? And sometimes they would and sometimes they wouldn't. And sometimes I'd get led on a merry chase all throughout Phoenix while this person like scammed and hustled me. And I'd go back to my dorm room defeated after a long day of trying to get dope with my nose running down to my chin. So sick. And that cycle repeated itself until my dope dealer in Tucson was like, hey, why don't you call this number? It's my cousin. He lives in Phoenix. And then like my luck changed and I was able to get dope delivered to my dorm room every single day. He'd call me when he was coming off the one-on-one and I'd come downstairs happy as Christmas morning, give him some money and get some drugs and spend the rest of my day pulled up in my dorm room. And then I realized that like that was not a sustainable fiduciary habit. And instead of like any other smarter way of going about it, I just like started asking my dorm mates if they wanted to do heroin. And a lot of them did. <laughs> a lot of them did. That worked out. So yeah, that worked out. And so I just started like selling them not a lot, right? Like 20 and 30 bucks worth of dope off of the dope that I was buying. So I was buying a gram for 50 bucks. And if I only gave them a smidgen for 20, then I had plenty left over for myself. That was my first attempt at being a drug dealer. And then what? And then, like I said, I moved to Flagstaff because I was in love with my girlfriend and things weren't panning out at ASU. And at this point, I was worried for myself. And I was on the hamster wheel of active heroin addiction and didn't know how to get off of it without imploding my life. And just simply asking for help seemed like too high a bar to clear. Hmm. So I was stuck. I was stuck and I couldn't, I couldn't live without drugs, but I also couldn't live with them successfully. I was doing very poorly. And my girlfriend was always asking, I mean, like I said, and I can't reiterate this enough, like my social scene in my world was very naive to drug use and what drug use looked like. So that everyone swallowed it that I was clean, even though I was covered in bruises all the time and just super, everyone wanted to believe me. Let's get down to brass tacks. Everyone was like in denial. I, I also heard I you say on that decarcerated show that you felt like society kind of let you down. Yeah. Threw you away. Yeah. I mean, when I, I'm so grateful that now in Pima County, like people don't get arrested for the kind of stuff that I was pulling or they do get arrested, but that arrest 
is investigated and possession of six grams of heroin is not automatically a class two felony for sales. It's, you know, investigated by professionals and behavioral health teams. And, and like, it's understood and widely acknowledged that that could absolutely be a reasonable daily use amount. And people get deferred to drug treatment programs and alternatives to prison. And there's all kinds of things that didn't exist back in 2010. In 2010, it was prison, 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 more prison. So that boom, I got caught in the middle of that boom. Just knowing what I know now, like I would say that punishment of substance use doesn't work. And that is society. Not It's not letting me down personally. Society didn't let down Enrique Olivares Pelayo. Society was letting itself down. Like the aspiration for redemption, the aspiration for society caring for its most vulnerable, the aspiration for society caring for its sick, like all that stuff went out the window and society just wanted to punish itself. Because like, that's the thing. People are like, we need to punish X part of society like that. Like they're not understanding that that's in society. Like society is an umbrella. It's a universal application. It's all of us. There's not parts of society. It's society. And when society cannibalizes itself and incarcerates itself and punishes itself, like, what would you say to a person that treats themselves that way? Like, stop hurting yourself, right? Like, stop hating yourself. Stop pretending like the part of you that wakes up at two o'clock in the morning to go eat a whole bag of cookies in secret, you know, is a piece of shit. That's the part that trips me out is when people are able to, like, co-sign that level of self-righteousness. Do you think that that would have stopped you in your tracks at all if somebody would have said to you, stop hurting yourself? First, I needed a little time away from the drug. I think that that's the most valuable thing that like rehab treatment centers offer. It's just an inch of separation from the drug. So with a little bit of clean time, hey, stop, like, stop hurting yourself. Yeah, I might have bought that hook, line, and sinker. But then again, I might not have. Right. Like I said, hindsight's twenty twenty, And I would love to think that 20 year old me had some sort of insight or some sort of light on. But I had to go through a lot more, a lot more before I was willing to concede that, like, maybe I wasn't a successful drug user. So talk to me about getting arrested. Well, that sucked. That was <laughs> that was November 14th, 2010. And it was early afternoon. I woke up that day in Flagstaff, Arizona with money in my pocket. I got on an Arizona shuttle. I drove down to the Sky Harbor airport on that shuttle and I met my dope dealer and he gave me seven grams of heroin and I went into the bathroom at terminal four and I did some of it and got back on another shuttle and drove, got driven back to Flagstaff. And the last thing I remember saying is I looked at some guy and I was getting off the van and I was like, have a nice life. And he was like, yeah, you too. And like 20 minutes later, I was getting arrested. Not even 20 minutes later, like two minutes later, I was getting arrested in the dirt outside of Cowden dormitory in on NAU campus. And there was like, there was a preposterous number of cops for just little old me. It was like, it felt like a dozen, maybe 15 Whoa. cops, sheriffs and Flagstaff PD, guns drawn, like on a school campus. It was just absurd. So I'm face down, ass up, and this like huge sergeant has his whole body on my neck and I'm like starting to cry. And he's like, don't cry now, tough guy. I remember that too. It is interesting what you remember, right? Yeah. And then 
I remember getting taken to the police department and this guy who I had sold drugs to was there and he was a detective. Oh no. And the other detectives, I like was put in this little interrogation room and it must be where they put the kids because there was like all kinds of kids books out. So I remember pulling out the book Pinocchio. So that happened too. Interesting. And I was reading all about this kid who wants to be a real boy, but he can't stop lying. Huh. And the cops came in and asked me to stop reading. And I said, okay. And they had this conversation with me and I said, I'm not telling you guys shit. I want a lawyer. So I'd seen enough <laughs> law and order to know that. And so they took me to jail where I sat for the next 10 months. Damn, that Pinocchio metaphor is something, right? Yeah, spooky. Damn. I mean, I, I could have picked up some other book, but that's the one that was at hand. Does that feel like somehow like mystical at all? Well, I mean, I buy into that stuff. Yeah. Like I, I have a vital and deep-seated belief system. I draw a lot of solace and a lot of grit and determination from a belief in a higher power. My concept of God articulates itself through coincidences and people and conversations. I've never had like a thunderous, booming voice, like, tell me how it is. But I've had more moments than I can count of serendipity and good luck and seeming bad luck that ends up being like really, really good for me. So I want to hear about some of those serendipitous moments. I know one of them was that somebody who was investigating you ended up getting in trouble themselves, right? Yeah, both of them. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So these guys, so these guys are narcotics detectives up in Coconino County. And on Christmas Eve, they were coming home drunk from the bar and hit someone's car and then tried to abscond from the scene and lie about it. So all of their hard work in the case of Arizona versus Olivares Pelayo had to be thrown out. It's pretty rad. Did you feel a little uh, higher powerness there? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, at the time, I didn't have that belief or that knowledge about the way my life has turned out. So at the time, I just thought, you know, F the police. (laughs) But now looking back in hindsight, like, yeah. Absolutely. It was, it was God all day. How did that reduce your sentence? Like if that testimony would have been used, what were you facing? Anywhere from 12 to 25 years in prison. At 13 felony charges, five of them were class two felonies, each with a presumptive of five years. Usually they take all the little penny ante stuff and throw it out and then make you plead to like, I don't know, six. Six seemed like a like a decent number that I was wrapping my head around. And so when I saw that four was a realistic thing that I was going to get, like I stopped hoping for two or two in probation or any of that. And I just said, okay, four, four it is. Did your parents help you navigate the legal piece? And do you think you could have been any better prepared for that? Like, what did you learn from having to get an attorney and face that kind of sentence? What I learned is that, like, you're better off killing somebody than selling drugs. That's what I learned. Accidentally, of course. They're hard on drugs, right? Yeah, like draconian. Anachronistically, against all research and best practices, just a very self-justifying kind of moral stance against drugs out here. That's crazy. Okay, talk to me about the bus ride going to prison. 
Well, that was dope because I mean, at this, I mean, the best preparation for going to prison is sitting in county jail for a long time because I got to like do a ton of qualitative interviews and just like figure out the ins and outs and meet people from different political cliques and get a deeper understanding of what I was in for once I got to prison. So there's also two different bus rides to prison. The first is the bus ride from county jail to Alhambra reception prison. And that bus ride was exciting, right? Like, this is it. This is a big field trip. I've got my signature slip sign and I'm ready. And I'm just prepared. At this point in my life, it's the biggest challenge of my life. Successful navigation of the next four years is now my purpose in life. It's my reason for existing is to get through these next four years. So it's I, it's a difficult to describe level of being alive. I was very, very alive on that bus ride. I didn't have any drugs in my system. I'd been clean 10 months. I'd been working out every day. I'd been prepared mentally for all of the experiences that I was about to have. And I was just, I felt very exuberant. What qualitative research led to you feeling ready? Just talking to people who had been down before and who had done time and learning all of the ins and outs of what race I was going to proclaim and what yards I was hoping to get on and what visitation was like and what the food was like and what, I mean, it just sounded way better than county jail. So what were the differences? Between jail and prison? Yeah. Jail is a room the size of your living room where a bunch of dudes crammed in it, watching TV and playing cards and little rooms connected to that with cells. That's what jail is. Jail is very incarcerated. It's a very high level of restriction. And prison is a much more open environment for the most part, unless you're on a close or maximum custody unit. Prison, no one's telling you where to be at what time, except for lockdown and count. You have unrestricted access to exercise yards and card tables and microwaves. And a lot of prisons have varying levels of privacy. Some are dorms, so that blows. Definitely ain't getting no privacy in a dorm stacked three tall on bunk beds. But others are like old military barracks with downright luxurious accommodations, showers that work, doors that close to your cell, like with a knob. So who knows where you're going to end up. But I knew that there was a high likelihood that it would be pretty cushy because I didn't have a dangerous crime and I wasn't doing very long. Four years is not very long, according to the diabolical arithmetic of the Arizona Department of Corrections. So I, I knew that like there was a good chance that I'd be able to like give my people actual hugs and, and have four hour long visits with them instead of 30 minutes. And like, I was just excited to finally have some sort of autonomy compared were, to being in jail. Like what were some of the best parts of being there? The, the best parts of being in prison were before I got strung out again, because I started doing dope again in prison and that made it really, really bad. But before that, the best parts were getting mail and talking on the phone with my parents every night and ordering commissary with my friends and cooking it. Like the recipes that these guys knew uh, were ingenious. Like they'd be like, you guys want to go to Panda Express tonight? And we'd be like, yeah. And so like we'd bring all of our bagged up chicken from the chow hall back. We'd smuggle it like we'd stick it in our socks or in our pockets and leave the chow hall with it and then bring it back. And my homie burrito would have like the Kool-Aid out and the peanut butter and Louisiana hot sauce. And we would make our own like spicy peanut sauce and then put it on the chicken with rice that we would 
fry in the microwave. So it's not really fried rice, but it's kind of fried rice. We'd put our vegetables in that and then soy sauce. So we would do our best. They're like, we would have tuna casserole with packets of tuna and mayo and chips, potato chips crushed up into like a fine powder and then mixed with tuna until it comes out like a sheet of casserole. Just really good stuff, really good food, good laughs, good working out. I had access to a library and I got to read all day, anything I wanted. My parents could send me books. And so like my mom always sent me like spiritual stuff or stuff that she thought might help me. My dad would just send me like whatever I asked for. And uh, I could watch TV, had a TV. So prison for a short time, I could have, I could have made it like a really positive experience. There was a lot of autonomy in on that unit to make it whatever I wanted. But then I got in, once again, I, I can see very clearly that I didn't have the inner strength or the sense of myself enough to know what's what. I was still very much like interested in what people thought of me and looking good and being cool and being like the coolest and like playing this bad boy persona. And so I started hanging out with some cats who were smugglers and they would organize prison contraband and they would get 25 ounces of heroin and cell phones and lots of spice onto the yard. And I started hanging out with them and I wasn't long until I was doing heroin and it wasn't long until they were doing heroin. These guys, these self-proclaimed hustlers who were like in it to make money, you know, we just, we started doing our own dope. Didn't go well for me after that. Yeah. What happened? Because weren't you worried about like increasing your time there? Depends, right? If you get caught or not. You only do more time if, if you get busted red-handed. For the most part, the Department of Corrections doesn't send people out to the courts if it can possibly avoid it, because that would just make them look incompetent, right? Like this mm. is, you know, like you're filling up our system with your prisoners. It would just be a black eye on them. That's really interesting too. Like, can you make friends with the guards? Not friends, unless you guys were friends from before your incarceration. But you can definitely like make business arrangements. You can be friendly. You can seduce any of the women you can. That would be like a huge come up if you seduced a cop because then they would do anything for you if they're in love. Did you see that? Well, I mean, rest in peace. Like I seduced somebody. Thank you very much. <laughs> like I had a, I had my little fling with the, that's why I wasn't uh, allowed to stay on my very first prison unit. It's how I ended up out in Douglas. I was the prison librarian's assistant. And part of my responsibilities was like helping guys pass their GED. But for the most part, I like hung out in the library a lot. And so me and this lady who I knew was dying of pulmonary cystic fibrosis and me would do crossword puzzles. And then one day, like our fingers brushed <laughs> and I was like, <gasps> she was like, <gasps> and yeah. No so, way, that's all it took, huh? That's all it took. Well, you were I mean, sensitive from no uh, I contact. was very, I was very sensitive. Um, <laughs> I mean, we're talking a couple months, maybe, of like me working there and doing crossword puzzles together and joking and stuff. That's so scandalous. Yeah, I'm a scan. I'm scandalous. I definitely like pushed that envelope as far as it would go. Like I wanted, you know, I wanted the most I could out of it. How, what, what rating is this? What rating is this? Oh, it's explicit. Tell me more. Okay. Yeah. No, it like led to the fucking scariest head I've ever gotten in my whole life in the back of the library. Like one day I just like decided it was the day and like I got up and locked the door and like I took her back there and she like got on her knees and put her 
radio like her staff radio on my stomach and like gave me head but like I was too fucking scared to like enjoy myself or have a good time with it so it pretty much just became like an achievement I unlocked in life because like I couldn't finish so did you share that with like friends unfortunately I did and then some hater in the fucking unit got wind of it and snitched me off and like she got fired and I got put in the hole and like what the fuck I have been trying not to cuss this whole fucking time. You should have started with that. 52 minutes of me not cussing. I almost All right, let loose. Any other stories? Jesus. That's crazy. That's amazing. I can't believe you can pull that off. I mean, that doesn't happen often. I mean, it happens more often than you would think. Other people probably, once they found out you did that, shared what they had done too. Well, a lot of guys, like a lot of people who are incarcerated have means and money and power like real power like re- like real power of life and death so that has its own little perverse form of sex appeal to a lot of women a lot of women find that sexy and so, so did they come visit or like what does that mean i mean like when we're i mean the topic was seducing female staff you see these dudes all day long the mythology around them is that they're like very powerful gang leaders and they're able to pull or like maybe they just have a ferocious amount of game and maybe they've been working out every day for the past four years so they look like chiseled gods and you know if the opportunity presents itself then it happens it happens a lot that's why uh the department of corrections is always moving its people around that's really interesting i like that whoa what happened after you got out everything happened like the rest of my life happened like that was that like i got out on november 14th 2014 and the first thing that happened was like i saw everyone on their phone and was like what the fuck is so cool in their phone that they aren't in real life anymore and my mom was like just wait and see you'll have one too i got a job pretty much right away i was super lucky to get one and to be employed. I got to come home to my parents' house. My cousin came out to hang out with me. I made friends. I went back to community college. I tried to successfully smoke weed and drink without ever going back to doing heroin. And while I never relapsed on opiates again, I also could not successfully navigate my use of of THC and alcohol. Like I just go full tilt, dude. I got no breaks and it's unsightly and it's unseemly and I don't like myself when I'm like that I didn't fight this hard to like regain a sense of self-control in my life to give it up for for anything really so when I feel things like start to get their hooks into me I resent it and I do what I can to to regain some of my self-control yeah we did skip over that part a little bit so you finally were able to get off the drugs and it was yeah shout out to shout out to browning unit arizona's answer to the shoe out in california pelican bay it's just corridor after corridor after corridor of isolation cells and i got abstinent there i sure did there was no choice there was no way around it i took the very last of my dope hidden in my ass and i pulled it out in browning unit may 8th I snorted it and then I sat down on the edge of my bunk and I was like, well, that's the last time I ever did heroin. And like to this day, that's true. That's cool. That is cool. Uh, I think that I let it go in stages. I had a grieving process. I had finally come to a place where it was 
It was no longer something I wanted to do. So I think that a large part of addiction for me was the sense of this is who I thought I was. And what happened in Browning Unit was I had a total identity crisis because I think I might have gone a little bit insane in isolation. Like I didn't know who I was. I was 24 years old and I didn't know who I was. I don't think I had ever done anything that wasn't to impress someone else or to gain someone else's approval. And my identity as a heroin addict had been like the last 10 years of my life. And if I wasn't going to be a heroin addict, then what was I? Who was I? And uh, I think that freedom was really exciting. But I had to never do heroin again. So like, I saw an opportunity to not fuck this up. You know, I had never had 10 months clean my whole life since using 10 months. I had never had that long. So I didn't want to like retroactively fuck that up. And who did you become? I mean, like, I, do, I have a different role now. I mean, I could give you the pat answer, which is like what I do. I'm a organizer for a criminal justice nonprofit. I'm a doctoral student. But like what, who I became is like the version of myself that the kid who grew up in Boston and wanted to like be successful and wanted to have a lot of friends and wanted to be good friends with his parents and, and love his life. I think that he could be proud of me. I think he would be proud of me. I think he'd like hanging out with me. I don't think he would think that I'm like a sellout or a fucking lame or someone who doesn't get him, you know, or who like turned his back on on who I was when I was eight and nine and loved to write and loved school and was athletic and wanted a hot girlfriend and thought he would own a home and all these things. And it's like, I can look back and be like, I did that, you know? And more importantly, I think I'm someone who is actively seeking to amend and make amends for who I used to be. And not in a way where it's like driven by shame or like, I'm never going to be good enough. It's like, because I know what it's like and because I've been there, I think I am suited, suited to the role of helping people. And if I have anything to do about it or say about it, like ending that shit show, ending that farce, ending that self-inflicted wound that we're perpetuating on society by like continuing to hurt ourselves like this. I also am very curious about how your relationship has changed with your parents. I mean, that's unbelievable that they talk to you every night after like what they must've experienced by you going in there. Like your yeah, mom is a doctor. They're asking, they're asking how my, how my interview went. <laughs> That's so cute. Little do they know it's still. Um, so my relationship has changed because I've taken responsibility for making that relationship better and for healing it. And to the best of my ability, to the most that I can, but also like my parents were still very eager to have a relationship with their kid. Like they love me. They love me too much. And so the fact that I'm able to like say, this is what I did wrong. What do you want to know? And that my mom was able to just like ask all of these gut busting, gut wrenching questions. Ooh, and then I just me. like told her the truth. She was like, so how much money did you steal from us? And I had to like give a ballpark. And she was like, so what about when this happened? And it's like, Ugh, like <laughs> I was lying about that. Like that wasn't true. Like I extorted that money from you because I knew that you'd be susceptible to a story about me like getting hurt in prison. You know, if you didn't comply with my little blackmail scheme. What about what about that? Oh, you're good at it, though. How can you use that, though, for the good? Well, manipulation is manipulation. I think manipulation gets a bad rep because it's so often put to nefarious purposes. 
but I think that like when people want to give manipulation like a better gloss, they call it like influencing or they call it like therapy, but like it's manipulation and manipulation is manipulation, right? Because like, I don't always know what's best for me and I don't always know what's like right for me. I think I know, but sometimes like, thank God that people with a better idea manipulated me until I got a clue. True. My dad will definitely have something to say about that. That's really (laughs) interesting. And final question. I know that you're getting ready to like get off social media. And when you came out of prison, you didn't realize everybody's like addiction to phones. Can you talk a little bit about why you're going to get off of social media and how that has changed your life too? I noticed myself addicted to social media like two plus years ago before I was ready to do anything about it or before I was willing to admit that like my addiction to social media was having negative effects on my life. I knew that I was addicted to social media just off the raw amount of time I spent on it, but I wasn't cognizant of the harm that it was causing me. I decided to get off social media once and for all and not just like put my shit to sleep or whatever other bullshit like little exits Instagram wants you to take before you eventually like commit to self-destruct. They're like, what about this? What about this? What about this? And you're like, no, 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 no. They're good, go. man. Gotta yeah. go. And also like 30 day, like, like, so you finally get them to fucking destroy it for you. And then they're like, all right, in 30 days, we'll destroy it. Cause we know you'll be back. You junkie motherfucker. <laughs> I just felt my fucking consciousness being colonized by a version of myself that had its own agenda and liked its own things and wanted to go places strictly for like their ambitions and their sense of who they were. Like I felt myself cohabitating with a version of myself who only exists virtually, a digital doppelganger of myself who's like spliced out of time and pinned on this grid like a butterfly in perpetuity at only the peak experiences of his life, right? So I was starting to feel like the sense of dislocation with who I even am and why my whole life and like my whole life is not peak experiences. And even though I'm very conscious of the fact that I had carefully curated that persona for a purpose and that it had nothing to do with me, I could see on my grid as the years went by that what I thought was cool and what I thought was cool about myself was slowly being co-opted by their fucking algorithm so that like my colors were better, my angles were better, my outfits were fresher, my smile was big. Like like I was starting to thanks be manipulated. Yeah, thanks for sending me those shots. Yeah. Yeah. I was starting to be manipulated by their computer. They so feed that it. My they eyeballs. Feed it. They yeah, and I was starting to feed it. And it's like, time out, wait a second. The fact that Thinking about permanently deleting this causes me emotional pain means that something deeply emotionally unhealthy is happening to me. Like this is a... That's so stoic. You know? Why? What do you mean stoic? Like Roman philosophy? I mean, you need to like experience pain in order to grow. Like you're like, this is, I'm feeling pain from this. Like this is making me uncomfortable. I know I got to do it. Yeah. I mean, if the Stoics, I mean, I think that the Stoics fell short of like actual spiritual enlightenment, right? Like I don't, I can't think of a Stoic philosopher who I would ask for the type of things that I would seek from like Buddhism, just to throw one out there, or like the teachings of Jesus Christ throughout another, or the wisdom of the, of the Torah. But as far as getting shit done and like self-improvement, like, yeah, that's, the Stoics had that on lock. 
Okay. Yeah. So tell me some of the best advice that you have gotten. And then I'm going to finish up with, do you have a question or advice that you'd like from my dad? Uh, the best advice I ever gotten was like, don't worry. Don't worry because you don't know enough to fucking worry. Like it's preposterous. It's hubris to worry about anything. If someone had sat my parents down and were like, check it out, your kid's going to go to prison and he's going to be a heroin addict. Would they have worried? Of course. But if they'd have just finished their sentence, they'd have been like, but then he's going to make an entire academic career out of the fact that he fucking used to hide dope in his butt. Like they'd be like, ah, cool. So we don't have to worry. And the answer would be like, no, you don't have to worry. You're going to get some scary phone calls. He's going to get hep C. He's going to come out covered in prison tats. He's going to be in knife fights, but you don't have to worry. And they'd be like, you promise? And God would be like, I promise. And they'd be like, oh, okay. And then they fucking wouldn't worry because they would know that it's going to be okay. Right. And like, that's happening to all of us all the fucking time with everything. Like, we don't know enough to worry. We don't know the outcome. Like, our emotional attachment to, like, this horrifying thing happening, that's just happening because of our limited sense of perspective. No so that's fear, the best huh? advice I ever no got. Fear. I mean, no, fear for sure. But fear and worry are not the same. Fear is primal. I, can't, I don't think you can do anything about fear. But worry is like an anxious, intellectual form of masturbation. I love that. Okay, cool. Anything you want to ask my dad? Uh, yeah, where do you get that hat? That's funny. <laughs> I want to ask your dad something. I'd be I'd ask your dad when it comes to romantic partnership, is there really a difference between making a choice and choosing to love someone and moving forward with that and settling? Because they seem like the same thing. You settle for the person who you're gonna make this decision with, and then you move forward and you take your fucking lumps. Like, cause I've heard people all my life be like, don't settle, don't settle, you know, like, you could, and it's like, I don't, I don't buy into that. And I would just like an OG's perspective on love. Cause like, in my experience, it looks like you just pick the one who like, you don't hate and you think is pretty great and you can respect. And then you just fucking ride till the wheels come off. Right. Cause like, I see all the people in my generation, like on dating apps and looking around and like, they're like, they're in a relationship, but they're not really. And they're, they would totally leave if something better presented itself. And I just wonder like, what happened to the, t to the days where you were just like, this is Betsy. I've known her since I was six and I'm going to die next to her in my eighties. <laughs> you know, like what happened to that? And like, you go through some really fucked up shit together. And like now it's like, oh, you guys are trauma bonding. And before it used to be like, uh, we're fucking married, you know, like something really horrifying and traumatic is happening, but we're not, you know, like now it's happening. Like, I don't know. That's what I would ask your dad is what the fuck is wrong with my generation when it comes to dating? How about that's the question? Okay. What the fuck is wrong with us? <laughs> he, he will definitely have something to say, but what I will say, what I think the difference is, is that my dad's generation, my grandparents, our grandparents' generation, they were all in. I think that's what the difference is. It's a decision. Yeah. It's, it's being all in. And I think in order even to give a good presentation, like if you say something that you are all in on, other people will be all in on it too. I hope I gave you some good juicy content that I won't see promoted on social media. You did. Keep in <laughs> touch. My texts are open. Sounds good. Now. Let's switch it over to Grandpa. So this is your interview with Enrique, a very touching subject. Actually, there's a hidden one here at the end of the show about finding the right relationship for marriage as well. 
<laughs> which was ended up being his question. But to overcome, we'll get to that, but to overcome uh, drug addiction or opioid addiction or heroin addiction or even uh, smoking weed, you can get addicted just like you can get addicted to a lot of things. Even social media, people are getting addicted or as you would tell me, getting addicted to the phone or addicted to the computer in this new age of social media. Well, it's hard. And your father sometimes is addicted to sweets, okay, or sugar. And I'm sure that there's millions of people that join in on that addiction as well. How do you break addictions is a really interesting question to all of this. And unless the person themselves want to do it, very, very difficult for others to try to participate and help. But if the person themselves want to rebel against it and want to stay addicted, they're going to stay addicted. Isn't that the truth? Yeah, I knew you would have something to say about that. And he said there was nothing that his parents could have done. No. And the truth of the matter is, is that the punishment by the parents is not really the solution. Parents and family members have to try to get professional help to assist if possible, but they're there to be supportive and loving because that's what's missing in that person's life is that they don't really feel like they're really understand life well enough and feel the, as he would say, the emotion of it or really finding where they're at. And parents might love their children, but if they don't show it and encourage love and explain what it's really all about, they can be lost no matter how smart they are, no matter how much money you throw at the problem, doesn't seem to go away. And what's interesting is, isn't it really related, Enrique? At the end of your question is that you're still wanting to know in your generation, people are searching for love and searching for continuity with their lives and sticking to a commitment. And as my daughter already said, you really got to be all in in order to really satisfy that. That's why they, you say the words through better, good times, bad times, sickness and health, and all the variables that go with the adversities of life, that you have to have a partner that's going to see you through no matter what. And people, unfortunately, give up. Even the best of marriages can hit a roadblock that can break them. It's easy to lose, as as you've heard me say before. And anything that we do, it takes hard work and perseverance and understanding and working on it. You got to work on it every day. There's no given where it's just a free ride. It's work every day, whether it's working with your children or your grandchildren or whether it's with your, your own spouse. Because circumstances can change throughout our lives and good things can happen, but bad things can happen. It's easy to lose. It's easy to get fallen to a a pit. And it's very, very difficult sometimes to stay the course. But that's what continuity, that's what love is supposed to be able to do. But still, you have to have the discipline to follow through. And isn't that what the story of life is, is learning to do better and following through and using all your experiences to actually form lasting relationships. That is what it's all about. And when you don't have that, you have to find out in the streets, really find out that the people in the streets are suffering and have the same questions and inhibitions as you have. And the bartender at the bar is full of stories of people that come in there and bleed their heart out and are looking for the answers and are frustrated over their job or their relationship. And Mr. Bottle becomes their best friend. And fortunately, when you get into drugs, certainly the wrong drugs like heroin, you're talking about, or these opioids, uh, they become so addictive 
and you need more and more and more and more of it in order to stay hot and or what I call staying numb so that you don't feel the world. You don't feel that you have to uh, worry about anything. That was the other issue you brought up is that worrying about things is only temporary and it doesn't necessarily resolve anything. Making constructive moves and bettering yourself with your education, with your experiences, and brainstorming with other people and meeting other people that can overcome their adversities, I think is much more helpful. But love and commitment has to go hand in hand. All right. Is that your final answer about his question on how he can find love? Well, uh, let's get to that. Uh, Clearly, that sounds like the answer that you have to have love and commitment. But you know what? Sometimes when people are searching for the perfect one, they can live their whole life and not necessarily find it. So does that mean that you should go through your entire life searching for that one person that you think is perfect and not get married, not be committed to someone? As you know, in, in our faith, we, we have certain people that they meet, they see if they, uh, they can answer some questions together and have a couple of good times, and the parents fix them up. They do that even in India. The Jewish people do it in the Chabad, you know that where they find out that some of these arrangements or meeting someone at a, med- at a church or at a wedding or, at, or meeting them at school where they're living and breathing and going through similar paths and they decide to hook up and do it together. And is it necessarily that one true love or are there many true loves out there? The one that you work the hardest and with, maybe accomplish that goal or does it have to be in fairyland or la-la land, where it's got to be in your dream. And I think reality, unfortunately, is not in la-la land. There's ups and downs. But if you work at it with someone that, that wants to work it out with you, you have a chance for success. I think you nailed it. You definitely have to work at it. Absolutely. Thanks for listening to the Better Call Daddy Show. Now you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and TuneIn. If you've enjoyed this episode of the Better Call Daddy Show, please feel free to review it at ratethispodcast.com slash bettercalldaddy. Add Better Call Daddy Podcast on IG at Rena Friedman Watts on LinkedIn.com. Hold up. 